Welcome to the Grace Point Podcast, a ministry of Grace Point Church for Scythe in Cumming, Georgia. To find out more about Grace Point Church, you can go to our website at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org. In a series on Ecclesiastes, today we're going to be looking at the end of chapter 9 and all of chapter 10. You can find this on page 558 on the Blue Pew Bibles. There's some in the back if you don't have one. And you can find it on page 662 in the Red Pew Bibles. We're going to start in verse 13. So as you turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 13, I want to remind you if you have children ages 5 to 5th grade, you are welcome to send them back to our Caruso Kid Zone. This is our opportunity for us to teach and to train our children in the truths of Scripture. They'll be going through the New City Catechism question and answer that we've already done today for our Confession of Faith. So parents, I encourage you after worship is over, over the lunch table, to ask them about that, what they learned on that New City Catechism question. Also, as you're turning there, just want to remind you, ladies, we have our Women's Ministry Brunch on September 10th at 10 a.m. This should be easy to remember. September 10th at 10 a.m. That's a Saturday. It'll be here in the building. Uh, it'll be a great opportunity not only to gather together as women, but to hear the vision for this year, the events that are upcoming, and how uh, the women of the church will continue to grow together and bless the church as well. That's September 10th at 10 a.m., our women's ministry brunch. Once you have turned to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, please stand for the reading of God's word. I'm only going to read verses 13 through 18, but we're going to cover the whole of 9, 13 through 10, 20 in the sermon. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, starting in verse 13. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man. And he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. The word of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of the rulers of the ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Father, as we continue to look at the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 9 and 10, we pray that you would help us not only to understand and comprehend what you're teaching us, but to hide these truths in our heart, remembering the truth of the gospel, remembering where your wisdom comes from, and remembering your call in our lives. Help us to understand in our head, to hide your word in our heart, and to work out with our hands what these truths mean to us. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. You may be seated. We are going through the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, if you have not been with us, you can find recordings. Uh, just check on our website. And Ecclesiastes is a book of wisdom, which means that all throughout it, there are different ways that the author is trying to convey to us wisdom. Now, as we say, every single time we open up the scripture, context is 
Yes, good, we're all awake. You're all just waiting for me to ask that question. I love it. Context is king. What this means is that anytime we open up the Bible, we need to understand who wrote what we're reading. Who was it written to? What was the context? What was the intention? What kind of literature is it so that we can better understand exactly what that author is trying to say? So with Ecclesiastes, this is wisdom literature, which means it's trying to help us understand better who God is. Now, in this case, it is likely, and I believe that this was written by Solomon, but even if it wasn't written by Solomon, it was written by a Solomon-like figure, a king who had much wisdom and was trying to help the people understand what he was saying. The context of this letter is it's written to Israel at a time when they're going from an agricultural culture into a commercial culture. In an agricultural culture, you spread the seeds and you pray. You pray that rain will come. You pray that the seeds will sprout. You pray that you'll have enough food. And so you're entirely trusting on what God is doing because you can't make those seeds grow any faster or any better. In a commercial culture, you're working hard to build your business and things like that. And so there's much more flexibility and opportunity for you to even make more money. And so in this transition from fully trusting on God to working hard to earn a living, Solomon is trying to help the people understand some of the pitfalls of transitioning out of agricultural and into commercial. And he does that using two main themes, two main things that he wants to convey. One is this concept of under the sun. The idea of under the sun is anything done without God, anything done on this earth, anything that is of this earth and of this earth only. And the other is this idea of vanity. This is the Hebrew word havel, which is like trying to capture the wind, chase after the wind. If you capture the wind somehow and you go to show it to somebody, all of a sudden it's gone. The idea of vanity is chasing after things that will never fulfill, you'll never be able to attain, and will never be able to be used. And so in this book of wisdom literature, Solomon is trying to help the people of God understand what it means to follow God no matter what their situation is. As we open the book today, we're going to be looking specifically at wisdom and folly. So before we do that, I just want to read you a couple of quotes. Wisdom is the reward you get for a lifetime of listening when you would have preferred to talk. That's a Doug Larson quote. I thought that was a good quote. Wisdom is the reward you get for a lifetime of listening when you would have preferred to talk. Another source unknown said this, A wise man learns by the experience of others. An ordinary man learns by his own experience. A fool learns by nobody's experience. And then finally, you don't have to be listed in who's who to know what's what. So we all want wisdom. And as these quotes have demonstrated, wisdom is something that's been sought after through the ages. Not only that, but we've also all seen fools. And we want to avoid being foolish. So how do we become wise and avoid foolishness? That's what Solomon is going to talk about in this section today. And he does it in a wide variety of ways using a lot of different literary devices but what we're going to do is we're going to look at verses 13 through 18 in chapter 9 and how Solomon describes wisdom. We're going to look at chapter 10, verses 1 through 3 and 8 through 15 and how Solomon describes 
folly. And then we'll see in chapter 10, verses 4 through 7 and 16 through 20, that Solomon paints a picture of wisdom and folly using an illustration of rulers. So we'll look at wisdom, we'll look at folly, and we'll look at Solomon's illustration using rulers. Let's start by looking at wisdom. Now the first thing I want to do, because some of the quotes in here don't make sense if we don't understand the context, I want us to understand better why Solomon is talking about the rich and the poor as he talks about wisdom. Because in our context, it doesn't really matter. If you want to become wise, you can become wise. But you see, in Solomon's context, that was very, very different. Commentator Roglin says this, modern-day cultural sensibilities may balk against associating wealth and privilege or wealth and the privileged nobility with wisdom and fitness to rule or associating uh, privation and slavery with a lack of education and inability to govern. In the Bible and throughout much of human history, that association has been assumed to be valid based on empirical evidence. This is what makes exceptional instances of poor and wise in chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, and this chapter, chapter 9, verses 13 through 15, particularly noteworthy. In Solomon's time in the ancient Near East, if you were not wealthy, you didn't have the time, you didn't have the resources, you didn't have the ability to learn and to study and to grow in wisdom. It was only if you were wealthy, it was only if you were privileged that you had the opportunity to spend money to get tutors and books and to have the time, not in the fields working, but instead to have the time to study and grow in wisdom. So in the ancient Near East and much across the world, you could not be wise if you were poor because if you were poor, you spent all your time just trying to survive. And so when Solomon talks about the poor here, he's not slandering them. He's making a big point by talking about how the poor are wise. That would shock his audience. That would shock his readers. So now that we have that set as our context, let's dive in to verses 13 through 15. This is a story that Solomon is telling, an observation that he has seen where an example of wisdom of under the sun is when a small city with very few people in it was being besieged by a king who brought in great weapons of war. You have a strong military, a strong army, a strong king bringing in strong weapons against this tiny town. But the tiny town is able to push back the king due to the wisdom of a poor man, a poor man who does not go recognized. They didn't build a statue of him. They didn't even recognize him by name. He was forgotten by the city, but they were able to push back the king because of his wisdom. This is a story with very unusual circumstances. As we've already said, it, it relates uh, keenly to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. Here we see a strong, mighty king defeated by a poor, wise man. Power lies in wisdom, not strength. You have to imagine in the ancient Near East, this would have been mind-blowing. 
Power would not have been seen as wisdom. Instead, it would have been seen as strength. We can see this if we think about the first kings of Israel. The first king of Israel, chosen by the people, wasn't chosen because he was a humble, good leader. He was chosen because he was tall and strong and a warrior. Because that's how people thought during that time. Power lies in strength, is what the people thought. But here, Solomon is saying, no, power lies in wisdom. And despite saying power lies in wisdom and seeing how the wisdom of a poor man, which is shocking and would have been like, whoa, that's, that's not normal, doesn't mean that the poor man is going to be remembered. Even this wise poor man is forgotten. And, but the fact that the man is forgotten doesn't take away from the point that Solomon's trying to make. Wisdom should be pursued for its own sake, not for personal gain. Wisdom should be pursued because it's powerful. Strength is not where power lies. Wisdom is where power lies. Think about Jesus. He's another example that would have flipped people on their head. In Isaiah, we read that Jesus is despised and rejected by men, and yet he's the Savior. John says that Jesus was not Uh, recognized or received by those whom he came to save because he wasn't strong and mighty. They were looking for somebody to come in and overtake and push out the Romans. Jesus was coming in to do something that would last far longer than one leader. Jesus was coming in to do something that would save their souls, not their physical nation. So in verses 13 through 15, Solomon shows the significance of wisdom, shows that wisdom doesn't always appear in the places we would think it would appear by showing that the poor man was the one who was wise, and shows that wisdom is better than strength. Then he moves on in verses 16 through 18, giving us some more pithy statements about uh, wisdom. Now I want to start here by saying 16 through 18 are not referring back to 13 through 15, okay? Because when we read, we read it all as one, but they're not referring back to 13 through 15 because the poor man's advice was heeded. And in 18, we see that uh, some, or that people are not heeding wisdom. Instead, what 16 through 18 are referring to is future generations, future generations who have forgotten the wisdom of the poor man or future generations who have forgotten the value of wisdom. And this repeats itself over and over and over again. We forget the wisdom of the past. What is the famous saying that our history teachers love to quote at us? Those who forget history or don't know history are doomed to repeat it. We forget the past. That wouldn't be a saying if that didn't happen all the time. It happens all the time. We forget the wisdom of the past. We forget what God has shown us. And we trust in the wisdom of the present. And Solomon's already shown us this over and over and over again. In chapter 1, verse 11, chapter 2, verse 16, chapter 9, verse 5, Solomon is reminding us that wisdom is important. And if we forget that wisdom, if we lose sight of that wisdom, we will make mistakes. And then he goes on in verses 16 to 18 to say not only that uh, not only would people forget the wisdom, but they might not listen to wisdom because of their own biases. So if, in the ancient Near East, 
poor people are seen as not wise because they didn't have the time or the resources or the money to study, then when Solomon tells a story about poor people being wise, that should shake them. That should make them think, oh wait, I never would have guessed that a poor person could have been wise. And that's Solomon's point. Make sure that you find wisdom where it lies, not where your biases are. Again, commentator Roglin says this, our biases against various types of people are often hard to shake. Where do your biases prevent you from hearing wisdom? Probably some of the most regular or common biases that we have is the bias of conservative versus liberalism. Or in the church, Calvinism versus Arminianism. Or in our culture, northern versus southern. I'm sure that all of you have heard somebody use one of those words in a derogatory way. Well, they're a liberal. They don't know what they're talking about. Well, they're, they're from the north. They, they don't know what this is like. Well, they're an Arminian. They don't know their Bible. Those are biases that are preventing us from hearing wisdom and listening well. And Solomon, in using the poor man in this story, is trying to tell us wisdom is wisdom. It doesn't matter where it comes from. Don't let your biases blind you from wisdom. Now, obviously, when we hear things that sound wise, what do we need to do? We need to compare them against the Word of God. That's the true source of wisdom. But what Solomon is saying is don't let any of your natural biases keep you from hearing the truth of God's Word. Wisdom is should be heeded no matter the source. Look at verse 17. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. So remember, ancient Near East, context is king. The ruler would have been thought to have been somebody who had money and influence and power who should have been able to study. But if he's shouting at fools, that's not the same thing as being wise and quiet. Solomon's saying that wisdom should be heeded no matter where we find it. And he ends this section in verse 18 by reminding us that even when we are wise, we have to be careful because foolishness or sinfulness can spoil wise things. Look at verse 18. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. So here uh, Solomon tells us a story Reminding us that wisdom can come from different places. We shouldn't let our biasness keep us from hearing wisdom. We should compare wisdom to the Word of God, but also remember that it doesn't take very much foolishness to destroy the effects of wisdom. All right, so now we've looked at wisdom in chapter 9, verses 13 through 18. Let's look at folly. There are two sections of folly that we see, chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, and chapter 10, verses 8 through 15. And we're going to go through verses 1, 2, and 3 individually, and then we'll look at 8 through 15 together because they all carry the same idea. Excuse me. In chapter 10, verse 1, we continue this theme of wisdom being able to be spoiled by foolishness. Foolishness is destructive. So look at verse 1. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. This is kind of a gross metaphor, you know, so perfume is something that we want, that is valuable, that we pay for, that makes us smell good. 
But if we have a bunch of dead flies in our perfume, all of a sudden the good smell is ruined. It doesn't take much to ruin what was good. In fact, this phrase dead flies in Hebrew is actually flies of death. So what Solomon is trying to convey likely is these flies are those uh, things that bring disease. Through small flies, something good can be easily ruined. This is how destructive folly and sin are and why we have to protect against it. It doesn't take much sin to ruin someone's character. So chapter 10, verse 1, is reminding us folly can easily turn on its head much wisdom, can take something that is good, something that is valuable, something that we yearn for and make it worthless. Then he goes on in verse 2. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Let me take just a moment. This is not, this is not, this is not a verse about politics. Please, please, gently but lovingly slap anybody you come across that tells you this is a verse about politics. Okay. So what the Bible means when it says the right is good and the left is bad is that throughout Scripture, we've seen good and bad presented as right and left. Genesis 24, Isaiah 30, the right hand or the right side was associated with strength and blessing in the Old Testament. The left hand was associating with being less favorable. And this carries through even to the New Testament, Matthew 25, verses 33 and 41. You think about it, if you're right-handed or left-handed, it doesn't matter which one, one of your arms is stronger than the other, more, more dexterous. So me being right-handed, my right side is stronger than my left side. Now, there are exceptions to everything, but the idea here is that when we pursue the things of God, in the Old Testament listed as the right side or the right hand, it is far better than pursuing the things of weakness, the things that are less favorable, the things that are foolish. And so Solomon is saying, pursue the right things, the correct things, the things that we have said over and over and over throughout text and throughout the Israelites' history at this point. Pursue those instead of the weak things, instead of the folly-filled things. And then finally, let's look at verse 3. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a this is a hard verse because I think we can probably all think of times in our lives when we've done this, or we can think of other people who have done this. What Solomon is saying here is fools show their foolishness. When somebody is not wise, when somebody is not following the Lord, when somebody is following sin, we will see that play out in how they make decisions. You have all met somebody who you're like, oh, they do not make good decisions. Over and over and over again, they've made the bad or the wrong decisions. And you expect that after a while. What Solomon is saying here is if you just watch somebody for a while, you can see whether they're making wise decisions or foolish decisions. And by making those decisions, they're essentially declaring their foolishness or their wisdom. And so Solomon is saying it's easy to spot a fool. So in verse 1, he says, foolishness or sin can ruin good things. In verse 2, he says, pursue the things that we know are of wisdom. In verse 3, says that when we act foolish, we are announcing it from the rooftop 
that we are foolish. Instead, we need to pursue wisdom. So one, two, and three dive into this idea of folly and help us to see why folly is bad. Then we fast forward in the text to chapter or verse 8. And in verse 8 through 15, you see all these little proverb-like sayings. We see them giving us observations about foolishness, observations about foolishness's tendency towards self-destruction. We see examples of how a fool is led into harm's way. In verses 8, 9, and 11, we see how a fool is led into harm's way through carelessness or lack of skill. In verse 15, we see how a fool is led into harm's way through ignorance. In verse 10, we see how a fool is led into harm's way by working harder than necessary. This one was really interesting because essentially it's saying if you have a blunt axe, it's going to take you a lot longer to chop down a tree. The wise thing to do is to sharpen the axe. But the fool just keeps hitting the tree with the blunt axe. Uh, In verses 12 and 13, we see uh, how fools are led into harm's way through destroying themselves through their words and actions. And in verse 14, we see how a fool is led into harm's way, especially when speaking with ignorance. Verses 8 through 15, Paul shows us again and again and again and again and again in a wide variety of ways how foolishness plays itself out. As we see this, it's easy for us to get angry, frustrated, upset, throw our hands up, scream, all these kind of things. But what did Jesus do when he came across fools? What did Jesus do when he came across people who were not acting in a way according to Scripture? Think about Mark. In the book of Mark, a rich young ruler comes up to Jesus he says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, you know, follow all the commandments. And he's like, I've done it. And Jesus looks at him with pity, knowing that there's no way he could have done all that, especially after we read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And he says, give away everything you have, and then come and join me. But before he says that, the text says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. The command Jesus was giving wasn't a rude command, a mean command, a command he knew that the guy wouldn't do because he was like, well, fine then, do this. Jesus loved him. And because he loved that rich young ruler, he got right to the heart of where that man's idolatry was. He loved him, he pitied him, and he showed him the wise way. Let go of the other things you're trusting in and follow me. So when we come across people who are doing any of these things, any of these foolish actions, we need to love them, pursue them, and show them the gospel. Why? Because what they're pursuing and the reason that they're foolish is that they're falling prey to temptation and to Satan. Look at the examples given in the text. Look at the illustrations that Solomon uses. Flies of death. And over and over and over again, he mentions the serpent. What's the first mention of the serpent? It's in the garden, right? And so Solomon is using imagery that the people would understand as negative, bad imagery to exemplify that foolishness follows sinfulness. 
Roglin goes on to say this, if Jesus is the perfect embodiment of wisdom, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 24 and 30, then the devil must be the true embodiment of folly. Be wise, not just because it's the right way to live, but because it's the godly way to live. So we've looked at Solomon's explanation of wisdom in chapter 9, verses 13 through 18. We've looked at Solomon's explanation of folly in chapter 10, verses 1 through 3 and 8 through 15. Now let's look at the illustrations that Solomon uses to bring across his point in chapter 10, verses 4 through 7 and 16 through 20. In both of these, he uses rulers or kings as an explanation of what he's trying to do. So let's start by looking at verses 4 through 7. Here, the counselor to the king is warned to be careful. There's a ruler who's ruling foolishly, who gets angry. The one who is counseling him must be careful, must be loving. Now, most of us have been either under a poor boss or one day will be under a poor or angry boss. And Solomon is saying, don't abandon your job. Don't, don't give up. Don't get angry back at them. But instead, pursue the wisdom of healing. Seek to care for that person. Try to diffuse potentially hard situations. Remember, the rich were able to afford time to study. And this is why it's such a shock when the poor are wise and the rich are incompetent. Again, Solomon is bringing that to light. Somebody who is a ruler should be wise. That is the expectation set forth. But when they're angry, when they're upset, when they're a poor ruler, don't abandon them, but instead love them well and try and draw them back into the presence of God. Don't abandon them. Care for them. Diffuse potentially hard situations. Draw them back into God's presence. One commentator pointed out that there is irony here in Solomon's words that we've seen repeated over and over throughout history that oftentimes the least competent people wind up in public office. He's not making a statement about our government, but what he's saying is that even when that's the case, Solomon is saying, pray for those people, care for those people, seek to diffuse those situations, and point those people back to God. Then in verses 16 through 18, he again shows rulers or kings. He shows two different kings and their kingdoms. First, let's look at the foolish king. The foolish king is a king who is a child Excuse me, look at verse 16. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. What Solomon means by a child here is the king is one who is lacking maturity, lacking experience, lacking wisdom. He's undisciplined. He's mastered by selfish pleasures. That's what he means when he says they eat in the morning. They don't take care of business. They don't do their strategic planning. They don't get done what needs to be done. Instead, they take advantage of the fact that they're well off. And they seek pleasure in the morning. They feast in the morning. In fact, we know that they get drunk in the morning because in chapter 17 it says we don't do that when we are wise. So the foolish king is one lacking maturity, lacking experience, undisciplined, and mastered by self-pleasure. 
seeking to feast in the morning. And what are the results of that? Fast forward and look at verse 18. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. What is he talking about? He's talking about kingdoms. So what is the house? The house is the kingdom. Because this king, this childish king, is not ruling well, the kingdom will be destructed. The kingdom will be destroyed. But what does a wise king do? That's what he says in verse 17. Happy are you, O land. So in verse 16, woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. In, in direct opposition to that, in verse 17, he says, happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. These kings, in verse 17, these leaders, these rulers, in verse 17, are sons of nobility, trained in how to rule, how to lead. They're disciplined. They know what to do and when to do it. They feast not to be self-indulgent, but they feast for strength. They feast not to get drunk, but they feast instead to rule well. And so in verses 16 through 18, we see these two different kingdoms compared. Solomon again is drawing people's attention to the difference between wisdom and folly. And finally, he closes out this chapter in verses 19 and 20. And 19 is a difficult verse to understand because much of what we've already seen in the book of Ecclesiastes has told us to enjoy our food and things like that. And here it seems very odd. Bread is made for laughter, wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. It doesn't sound like what Solomon has been saying previously. And so whereas before he's been saying, enjoy the things that God has given, here he seems to be speaking in a kind of mocking way. Likely, many, many commentators agree that what this is, is this is Solomon quoting something in the culture. Just like Paul did. Remember Paul said, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. He was quoting culture. He was trying to help the people in that time and in that place see that that saying didn't work well in accordance to Scripture. Here Solomon is doing the same thing. The, the saying, bread is made for laughter, wine gladdens life, money answers everything. Solomon's like, nope. I'm talking about wisdom. And this, in your culture, is directly counteracting what I am saying. Instead, what, what Solomon is doing, because we know from that comment about money, which is wildly exaggerated and a departure from everything else Solomon has said, is Solomon is mocking the hedonistic and materialistic approach to life that is happening all around the people. Remember, we've moved from agricultural to commercial. We've moved from completely trusting in the Lord to bring up all that we need and God providing for us to us being able to work harder and provide for ourselves in some way, shape, or form, which means that there's more free time and there's more money to spend. And because there's more free time, because there's more money to spend, then all of a sudden, the neighboring uh, nation's hedonistic and materialistic approaches to life becomes appealing. And Solomon is saying, we need to focus on wisdom. We don't want to focus on the things that this world says are good. We want to focus on the things that are actually good, the things that are found in the Word, the things that bring wisdom. And finally, in verse 20, we see that even 
with bad leaders, even when we are in a place where our, our leaders are doing terrible things and not leading well, the roof is falling in, to use Solomon's own words against him, we're not supposed to complain and critique, even in private. This is hard. I can't tell you the number of times I complained or critiqued my own bosses as I was growing. You know, obviously, I had everything right, and they were just blowing it. It's so easy for us to think that way. And here Solomon is saying, even if you're under a foolish king, don't critique or complain. Solomon is going directly to our hearts. The same way Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, you know, when it says, don't kill, you haven't obeyed that if you've only not stabbed somebody till they stop bleeding. You haven't obeyed that if you've had anger with somebody in your heart. Solomon's doing a very similar thing here. Don't critique the king in your heart or even in your own bedroom in this private place. Make sure that you are trusting in the Lord. Don't badmouth people in our hearts. Don't complain. Don't critique, even in private. This is so hard for us to do today. Because today we have tools that allow us to both remain anonymous and yet also be seen by millions. And so what is our natural inclination? Our natural inclination is not when we get home to say, look at all the great things that have happened today. Our natural inclination is to dwell on all the negative things that have happened today. Even if we have an equal amount, even if we have more great than negative, what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about the negative. Our brain is just wired that way. Our brain is wired to see the negatives more than the positives. And Solomon is saying, stop. Wisdom is with a grateful heart. Foolishness critiques. So before you post on social media or anything like that, ask yourself, Am I acting wise or am I being foolish? Solomon has shown us wisdom. Solomon has shown us folly. Solomon has given us stories so that we understand these concepts well. So now we have to ask ourselves, how does this apply to us? We're not in a commercial transitioning or a agricultural transitioning to commercial. We're in a fully commercial where whatever you're gifted in, you can do. Where if you work hard enough and do enough, you can be there. And so while we aren't in the same place in history, we are definitely in a situation that is similar to Solomon's readers. So what do we do according to these things that Solomon has said? I think there are three things for us to point out. One for wisdom, one for folly, and one for his illustrations. Number one, trust the word. The wisest place that we can ever be is in God's word. It is the fountain of all truth. It is the source of ultimate truth. And so instead of working off of our own biases, instead of working off our own knowledge, instead of working off of the things that we think or the things that we think we know, trust the Word. Wisdom is found in God's Word. This is Him speaking directly to you. Trust the Word for wisdom. Wisdom, now folly. What do we do in folly? Solomon said over and over and over, avoid foolishness. Sin and folly, sin and foolishness are all around us. And we're called to run from it. How do we do that? How do we run from foolishness? We trust one another. 
We are a covenant family of hope. We have brothers and sisters around us. We need to have them being asking us, hey, have you been in the Word? Have you been praying? How are you doing in your daily devotionals? How are you doing in your pursuit of holiness? I know that this was a struggle for you because you trusted me with that. I've been praying for you for that. How is that going? Let's worship together. Let's make sure we don't miss because corporate worship is not just praising the Lord, but it's a blessing to us. How can we avoid foolishness? We can avoid foolishness through the disciplines of grace. Prayer, time in the Word, accountability, corporate worship. Those things draw us into God's presence and help us to avoid the foolishness of this world. So we see wisdom in God's Word. We avoid the foolishness of this word world by seeking out God's Word and pursuing the disciplines of grace. What about the stories he told us? about rulers. How can we apply those to our lives? I would challenge us in speaking about rulers, if you have any authority whatsoever, be careful with your authority. Watch as you lead. Be wise as you lead, not falling prey to temptation, not falling prey to the things these poor rulers have fallen prey to. Fathers, how do you lead your families? How are your family devotions and worship going? How are you loving your children and constantly pointing them to the Word? Bosses, how do you lead your employees? Those who serve either alongside with you as you're a team lead or underneath you as you are a boss, do you care well for them and demonstrate peace and wisdom to them in all that you do? Elders and deacons, How do you lead the church? Are you really giving of your time? Are you fulfilling the promises that you made to this body to lead well, to pray diligently, to shepherd and to care? Teachers, how do you lead your classroom? Are you loving all of your students? Are you praying for them? Are you demonstrating wisdom as you teach them? Anyone else in any kind of authority? How are you leading wisely? How are you leading wisely? Not just that, but as Solomon told us, don't complain about those over us, even in our own hearts. When we are tempted to complain, instead turn to prayer. When our boss has made us angry, instead of planning all these conversations in your mind. Well, I should have said this, and if I had said this, then they wouldn't have been able to talk back. Pray for them. Lift them up before the Lord. Trust that God will work on their hearts. Because I hate to break it to you, but you're not the Holy Spirit. Doesn't matter what you say. Doesn't matter what you do. You can't change their heart. Only the Holy Spirit can. So pray to the one who can change their hearts that they may change and love you well trust in the word avoid foolishness and watch as you lead we all want to be wise there's a story of a man who came to socrates and said i want wisdom so socrates took him down to the water and they stood in shoulder deep water and he said what do you want he said i want wisdom So he took the man's shoulders and he pushed him underwater for 30 seconds. Then he let him back up. And the guy was sputtering and he said, what do you want? He said, I want knowledge. So he pushed him underwater for 45 seconds. 
And he lifted him back up, and the guy's like, <coughs> and Socrates says, what do you want? He said, I want wisdom. So he pushed him back under for a full minute. And he lifted him back up, and he said, what do you want? He goes, I want air! And he says, when you want knowledge and wisdom as much as you want air right now, you'll have it. We all want to be wise. We all want to pursue the Lord. And we have to trust his word. We have to avoid foolishness. And we have to watch as we lead from the positions that God has given us. Let's pray. Father, it is a weighty topic to talk about knowledge, wisdom, foolishness. Because while we don't want to admit it, all of us have been foolish. All of us have had times, places, maybe extended times and places where we didn't pursue your word. Where we didn't avoid sin and foolishness. Where we didn't pay attention as we led over people. So Father, convict us now. Help us to understand Solomon's word to his people. Help us to understand how that applies to us today. Help us to hold fast to the gospel. We know we have blown it. We can't even list the number of times we've messed up on our hands. But we also know that it's not up to us because the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of you, Lord, is eternal life through Christ Jesus. So help us to have faith in Christ. Help us to trust in him. Help us to run to your gospel. Help us to trust your word. Help us to avoid foolishness and help us to watch as we lead. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. We pray that you are drawn closer to God and encouraged to be in the word. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org.